Welcome to the Pond Renew podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Mayalis, and this season we're looking at the stories of Joseph that are found in the book of Genesis. And today is today is a humbling one because today we're going to look at some situations and some people who who don't do the right things. And it's a humbling reminder that, well, we, we can't just say that was in the Bible. That's still our, our world uh, today, a world that is topsy-turvy, broken, and a world in which we and others make mistakes and uh, in which we, we hunger for, for God's uh, redeeming grace to restore us in relationship to each other and ultimately to God. So without further ado, let's get pondering. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I knew. Joseph came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and all of his daughters sought comfort, but he refused to be comforted, and said, No, 
I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. What I love about the Old Testament is that you get these stories that seem at first, again, to have nothing to do with our lives. In this case, a 17-year-old boy who's thrown into a pit in the wilderness um, and ultimately sold into slavery by his brother. First glance seems like absolutely nothing to do with our lives. But you just, again, start scratching the surface and you're like, oh, man, this is, this is our story still. So I first want to think about Joseph here. Joseph here is uh, somebody who has, because of the way his father has treated him and the way that he has sort of lived into that, has aggravated his brothers. And his brothers then are going to totally escalate the conflict and they're going to um, decide on the one hand to kill him and then after some more compromise and debate, sell him into slavery. They're going to betray him. And I'm wondering if in life you've ever felt betrayed by people you love. It could be your biological brothers, like in the story of Joseph. Could be your siblings, could be your cousins, could be other people in your family. Could be close friends, could be coworkers, could be fellow students, fellow team members, where you felt like you had their trust and for some reason they sold you out. You know, betrayed you, backstabbed you, pick, pick your term, and they didn't stand up for you, they didn't help you. And to make matters worse, the very moment of your betrayal was, might have been a moment when you, like Joseph, were simply trying to help out, and you actually were trying to do something good, right? You were just going from your father to sort of check in on them. The moment of betrayal here is a moment when they were supposed to be, hopefully, working together. Mm. So painful, so painful. So in, in your life, when have, again, you experienced this sense of, of being backstabbed? And are there times in life where you have been accused of others of backstabbing or selling somebody out when you feel, no, no, that wasn't how it was? Or maybe even more humbly, you recognize years later that you didn't do the right thing. There also becomes the character, the person of Jacob in the story, the father who sends his son off, unaware of what sort of where the demons are dwelling. Have you ever in life set somebody up, a family member, an employee, a friend, for a situation only to realize later that they were walking into a trap? And how did you feel about yourself afterwards, the pain and the shame? I want to not only sort of think specifically about the betrayal here, but I just want to sort of help us see that this story, which again seems like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, is a story that we know. A story of somebody sending off somebody they care about into a situation in which they were trapped and betrayed by other people that cared about them. And that's a story I think where we've been in all three of those sort of roles with, within that. And again and again, we find in the Old Testament these stories of 
you know, people doing like real things and really messing up and, and not sitting there hours in prayer and then finally discovering the, the virtuous path, but on the fly in, in life, just things unfolding and, and then doing really sometimes well-meaning and but ultimately terrible things and sometimes just doing outright terrible things to each other. And, and that's the world I think that we live in. And so then when we um, think often, you know, in the Old Testament, people get, oh, I can't believe God seems so angry in the Old Testament, as if like Jesus never got mad. But the, the thing is that when you start to read then the Old Testament, you read what the people do, which is like what people do today, I think we as readers often get mad and upset. Like I'm mad at Jacob's brothers at this point. And, uh, you know, it's like, why shouldn't God be mad at, at humans for the ways in which we hurt and mistreat each other? You know, why shouldn't be God um, be upset with Joseph for the way in which he was bragging to his brothers, thinking that they would bow down to him? Talk about idolatry, right? So why shouldn't God be mad at Jacob for not seeing the, the way in which he was sowing seeds of jealousy among his, his children? So the Old Testament, the more you read it, the less you actually get upset with God for being upset with the people, but the more you're like, you know, wow, this is a really hard situation. And, and what's, what's a divine being supposed to do, right? The theme of sort of all the Marvel and all the other movies. If you have all the powers in the world, you know, what can you do? And it turns out that your options are almost more limited than you think. But I'll save that for, for Marvel movies. But for us today, just thinking about the dynamics here, of a story that's about betrayal, that's a story that we know and a story that we've often found ourselves in. And if you have, then, then know that you can find yourself in this story. Know that there's a God, there is the God in this story, our God, who's at work in their lives and, and in those times in our life is in your life as well. The next person I'd like us to look at is Reuben. And I find Reuben's uh, character so incredibly haunting Reuben is the, I think, the eldest son, and he feels this sense of responsibility to avoid his brothers killing their younger brother. And so he, he takes it upon himself to interject himself in this conversation, and, and he says, look, we shouldn't kill our brother. We all know this is, this is terrible. Uh, so... Instead, let's just strip him and beat him and throw him into a well and teach him a lesson. This is obviously uh, still a really terrible moral sort of decision by, by Reuben. Like, basically, again, let's beat our brother, take his clothing, and leave him to die. And, and then, you know, he thinks, I'll come back and get him. There was a, a great sermon uh, once preached on it. And this is why the, the person of Reuben just always haunts me. And it was by a South African preacher. And the South African preacher was, um, was preaching on this story of Reuben, and, and, he, and he began to talk about the Reuben option. And the Reuben option is, is not a, a type of sandwich. The Reuben option is the time in life when you're faced with a moral evil, and your response is to do enough that you feel that you can sleep at night, but not enough to actually change the outcome. And so you really haven't done what is in your power. Like Reuben didn't stand up to his brothers. He didn't put his life on the line. He didn't risk it. He didn't um, 
again, there, there was no sort of prayerful or theological or moral. There was, there was no real sort of uh, effort here other than to say, like, you know, I'm going to do sort of what is the easy way that can avoid maybe total disaster, but really isn't going to change things that much, and it turns out, at all. And what the pastor in South Africa was doing was he was calling the generally the people's attitude in sort of the white Protestant churches who were not in support of apartheid but didn't do anything to end it. He was saying that was a Reuben option. That they were taking this, this moral... Um, this, this moral position that allowed them to feel like they could still sleep and not like, well, I'm not in, in favor of apartheid. But they weren't doing a single darn thing to change it. And ever since then, I've just been haunted by this phrase, the Reuben option. Because in life, this, this happens, right? Our character is defined sometimes about how we respond to success, but typically our character is defined by how we respond to adversity. And the challenges, when something actually is on the line, when our actions really matter for how we you know, interact with others and, and you know, th- that our actions can actually have an impact on people's well-being and, and health. And so I ask you, when you think about your life and the, the situations you've been in when the chips have sort of been on the table, um, when you know, something's on the line, how have you responded? When have you taken the Reuben option? When have you seen others take the Reuben option? The option that, again, allowed you to sleep a little bit better at night, but when you were really honest with yourself when you woke up at 3 a.m., you unsettled, knowing deep down inside you didn't do all that you should have to help another human being and to do the right thing. Hmm. So again, this is something I think we can reflect on in a small group together listening to this or just by yourself as you ponder this podcast what is a Reuben option in your life when have you taken it when have you seen others take it but I want to uh, push this in a little bit different of a direction here and what I'm thinking about is that um, so we have these examples from like apartheid South Africa and even Martin Luther King in America would say something very similar um, that he said you know the real challenge is white moderates uh, the people who, you know, have sort of no deep prejudice but don't do anything to change the system and thereby allow it to continue. You also have a consciousness of, say, the countless um, Germans in World War II who, they weren't overt Nazis. They thought the Nazi party went too far, but out of fear, out of a love of their country, again, out of all sorts of mixture of motives, um, felt like they couldn't stand up to the Nazis, sort of taking the, the Reuben option. But I, I wonder, though, if, you know, we live in an age right now where there's you know, a lot of, of division, obviously, and, and people get intensely tribal about politics. And I see all sorts of memes from both conservative and liberal people sort of saying, you know, that you know, for silent in the face of injustice that, you know, that this is itself a sin, right? They're sort of along the lines of this, going back to this Reuben option. But what, but what then happens is that everybody is totally fired up to sort of speak on behalf of whatever particular side of an injustice that, that they see. 
um, and believing that you know it is a moral failing to not do all that one could and, and, and should do to sort of advocate for a side or a person or a position. And then in the process, you, you sort of end up with everybody just sort of charged up and sort of yelling at each other, um, convinced that they're morally right and that the other person is morally abhorrent. And, and I wonder, though, um, to, to what extent is there actually the, the harder path right now may actually be trying to be somebody who um, holds people and um, who disagree together, who tries to actually find compromise, tries to find sort of pragmatic solutions that, again, were the backbone of sort of how America functioned. Uh, sort of the American spirit is very pragmatic. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, though, what is your thought? Are people who are choosing to sort of remain moderate are these people who are taking the Rubin option and not doing what they should to sort of drive, um, you know, the spoke into the wheel of injustice, as, as Bonhoeffer talks about? Or is there a way in which the, the courage today is to actually uh, try to find ways to, to bring people together, to sort of offer compromises uh, to people, to, to, again, to sort of find a way for for life together at, at some way to, to happen. Or again, our, our sort of people are being moderates just delusional. <laughs> and that ultimately that, you know, uh, sort of in the end, the calamity is coming and they should have done all they could in the meantime to sort of stand up for what is right. So I just leave that as a really open-ended question uh, for you and, and for your uh, reflection. Um, is when it comes to sort of these issues in our culture, is the Rubin option sort of the, the path of moderation or is moderation, in fact, or trying to find a way for people to live together, can this, in fact, be a way of, that's sort of more, that, that's actually is, is kind of risky. So I leave that for, for you to discuss there, uh, the haunting uh, character of, of Rubin. Lastly, I want to conclude with a little bit about Judah, Judah, like Reuben, suggests an option that is really not very morally good, but maybe slightly preferred. And he has his brother sold into slavery, which, first of all, is a little bit of biblical irony because the main like, whole next book of the Bible is about the liberation of the Jewish people from Egyptian slavery. But Joseph is going to be the first Jew into Egyptian slavery, and he gets there because his brother's who are Jewish, sell him into it. The, the Bible's really sort of driving a bitter irony there about the, the human uh, spirit there. But, the, but what I want to get at is that it's really easy for us as modern readers to kind of say, look, you know, that's the biblical world that has like slavery in it. And we don't have that anymore. However, actually there is, a, there is uh, has been, uh, and a tremendous amount of slavery in human history. And you could actually argue that slavery is the norm for the human experience and that most uh, times in most cultures, people have had slaves in their economy, whether it's Greco-Roman society, whether it's Arabic society, uh, again, all over the world, again, the, the norm has been sort of human slavery in some shape or form or other. 
And it's then a sort of an even more complex debate about the Christian attitude towards slavery, which I would just summarize and say biblically and historically, although Christians have probably been more tolerant of slavery than we would feel comfortable with. Generally, they have been leaders of movements at various times in more than just the American-British context. There have been, again, multiple times around the world where Christians have been against human slavery. But what I want to drive at is that today, I have a federal prosecutor friend, and his job at one point was to prosecute gangs in the inner city. And these gangs would actually trade women who are sex slaves, teenage girls, for guns. And so lest we think that we live in a world that somehow has totally gotten rid of this, it, it is still with us. It, it may not be sort of large plantations like in the South, but we cannot say we live in a world that is freed of slavery. I bring this up because it is so important for us to <laughs> humble ourselves as moderns lest we think that we sort of have outgrown the problems of sort of human society or biblical society, like we're sort of advanced and we sort of have, have moved on from this, that the reality is, is that uh, humans haven't changed. The human capacity to objectify, to commodify, and to sell each other existed then and exists today. So that's a little bit of a dour note to end the podcast on, but I'll just say that that's the world, that's the world that we hear in John 3.16, that God so loves. Not the world in which everybody gets along and everything's perfect, the world in which humans have time and time again and culture after culture found ways to uh, objectify, commodify, and even um, you know, own each other. That's the world that God loves. That's the world into which Jesus came. That's the world uh, into which Jesus has promised a new heart, a new relationship. So God's grace is going to have to figure out a way to work in your and my life uh, in spite of all of this. And that's what we're going to start to get into, hopefully, as we move sort of further ahead in Joseph's story is sort of where God's grace is. Because today was a, a bit tougher of a story sort of about the, the human, uh, the hardness of the human heart. So we pray for, for God's grace and uh, we rejoice when it comes and look forward to reading more of the stories in the next couple of weeks that delve more into that grace.